Hatamariya, welcome to First Up. It's Rapare. This is Thursday, the 16th of February. Kornathan Rararariaho coming up. At least four people are dead. Thousands homeless across Tairafati, Hawke's Bay, Northland, Auckland, and Coromandel. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni joins us in the aftermath of the most catastrophic weather event, Living Memory. Uh, we're also going to be in the Coromandel town of Tairua, where some residents will spend a fifth day without power. And an animal charity builds a greyhound kingdom to provide uh, temporary shelter to Auckland's pooches displaced by the cyclone. The owner was incredibly stressed and emotionally affected by everything. She was sitting in the dark when we arrived. And she wasn't leaving because she didn't know where to take these dogs. There's five of them. Kia ora welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere and uh, we will be touring around the world soon for information but also uh, just getting into uh, updates of what is happening. I've just been uh, communicating with uh, Hastings Councillor Damon Harvey uh, who has uh, told me that down there there's still um, about 1,400 people unaccounted for around Hawke's Bay and uh, if I saw the pictures there last night of uh, Esk Valley you can see what a, what a huge torrent uh, has come down through there. So we will try our best during the morning to uh, get more information for you and also find out how you can ask the police to look for people if you haven't heard from them because I know that that's, that's a huge worry uh, right now. Uh, anyway we're going to uh, head to the United Kingdom right now. I'm joined from London by our correspondent Henry Riley. Morena Henry. Nate, very good evening from London. Hey, and now this is uh, interesting news. Obviously we went through this in New Zealand but Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has has resigned. What? Why? Why was that? We don't really know. It's all come as a bit of a shock, to be honest. She's been a real staple of British politics. She's been the first minister for eight years, over eight years. And indeed, before that, during the first minister before that, Alex Salmond, she was the deputy first minister. So she's been in and around British politics for quite some time. She sort of shot to prominence after the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. Alex Salmond, the then first minister, resigned. Big shoes to fill. He was considered one of the most impressive politicians of his generation, whatever you thought of him she then took over and has really trounced him in some ways in becoming one of the most successful one of the most influential politicians that really has ever been in britain i don't think that's any exaggeration she's made a huge impact on british politics obviously in particular in Scotland, but also across the uk as well in the 2015 general election debates that was when she was invited onto the podium with all of the various party leaders uh, in London and she really made a, a huge impression. Now she's been under some attack for the last few weeks she introduced a very controversial uh, gender recognition bill she then had a problem because in Scotland there was a rapist who was born a man, transitioned to a female and was put into a female prison that really caused her some difficulties over in Scotland and then currently as well there is an investigation into finances surrounding her party as well so there's some speculation that it's got something to do with that the 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 reason there are eyebrows raised nathan is that she gave an interview to nicola sturgeon a few weeks back she was asked jacinda ardern has just stepped stepped aside could you do the same and she said i'm not going anywhere i've got plenty of fuel in the tank was the exact expression she used so it's really come out of the blue and um whatever your thoughts of nicola sturgeon a huge loss to politics so then obviously people like to see who the, the new person is. Who's, who, well, you know, who might replace her? So there's a few names and likely 
it could be her deputy, John Swinney. He, of course, Nicola Sturgeon was the deputy before she was the first minister. It seems like an almost natural progression. Other well-known figures are a man called uh, Angus Robertson. He was previously very big in the House of Commons because he was the Westminster leader of the Scottish National Party, the, Scot- the sort of uh, UK-England arm. Sorry, the England arm, not the UK arm. The, U- the England uh, arm of the party. And then another very popular candidate is Kate Forbes. She's a very uh, closely linked to Nicola Sturgeon. She sort of will be the Sturgeon candidate if she does go for it. She's currently the Scottish Finance Secretary and speaks fluent Gaelic. Um, She, I imagine, won't run. She's previously been asked about it in the past and has been somewhat hesitant. But I sense it will be either Angus Robertson or John Swinney. I know, I know Angus Robertson. He looks like an Angus. You know, he looks like a bloke called Angus. I, another one you yeah, remember. Yeah, he's very you, angry. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you told me, I was like, oh, yes, him. Yeah, he's, he's an in charge looking <laughs> bloke. Hey, let's move. I think we'll remember in 2018, if you remember, the, the Thai boys that um, were trapped in that cave the diver had to go and get. Um, one of them has died in the UK. What, what more do you know about that? A really shocking story. As you say, of course, they were down there for two weeks back in 2018. This is Duang Pech uh, Promthep. He was one of the 12 boys arrested, um, arrested, one of the 12 boys released, I should say, um, of course, after that terrible incident in Thailand. He's only 17 years old, found unconscious at his dorm in Leicestershire on Sunday. He was then taken to hospital and died. He was a very promising footballer. He was enrolled in a football academy in the UK. He'd done that since late last year as well. He was the captain of that football team that was of course trapped in the cave in Thailand and extremely sad reports today that he's died reports in Thailand though this hasn't been confirmed in the UK that it has something to do with a head injury which does raise the concern of whether that has happened as a result of him being trapped in that cave for two weeks and if so some fear about the safety and the well-being of the other footballers who were, who were trapped in that particular cave we were just rushing through a bit this morning but I just want to get the latest from this missing woman uh, case which is quite incredible just no trace at all Nick Nicola Bully, is it? What's the latest on this? This has really proven to be a huge mystery. Everyone's interested in this, from the tabloids to just regular folk on the street. Nicola Bully was last spotted on the 27th of January. She dropped her daughters off, her two daughters off at school, aged six and nine. She was then walking her Springer Spaniel called Willow at, we think, just after nine o'clock in the morning. After that, no one knows what has happened to her. She's There's been a, almost a regular police briefing. One of the key ones was today where they said she was a high-risk missing person from the start of the investigation. She's 45 years old. She's a mortgage advisor. And after that dog walk on St. Michael's on the Wire, that's in Lancashire, she's totally gone missing. The police think there is a 10-minute window for which they are certain that whatever happened to her happened to her. The search has gone on because it was right next to a river and there was a fear that she might have been in the river. The river has been searched extensively. She hasn't been found there. The search has now continued out to the sea. Still no sign, but it really is a worrying case. And many people are hoping uh, that she will, of course, be found, that there will be at least some uh, relief for the family in knowing what's happened to her. But as you say, missing since the 27th of January, it really has been one of those cases that's dominated the media in the UK. Yeah, Henry, thank you so much for your time. There he is, Henry Riley, out of the UK. It's 12 and a half past five. Of course, um, you know, uh, distraction here. Uh, over the death toll of last week's earthquake, which devastated southern Turkey and northern Syria, is now more than 40,000. The focus now is on the plight of the survivors, the BBC's Carolyn Davis uh, reports from a hospital ship off the Turkish coast. In the aftermath of the earthquake, shelter and help come in many forms. These arrivals at Iskanderun port are boarding a floating hospital. 
This ship arrived about five days ago. It's normally used as a tourist ship, but now, of course, it's become a floating hospital. And here is where people arrive and they're assessed for what need they have. On board, they offer checkups, a pharmacy and warm food, enough for up to a thousand people. Nurjan and her children have slept here for the last three days. For a couple of days, we were on the streets until the ship arrived. We had our first shower here. They gave us new clothes because we were in filth. We don't know what's awaiting us. As long as the ship docks here, we will be living on the ship. The severely injured have been sent on to permanent hospitals, but the ship has set up a hospital ward to help treat those with chronic diseases unable to get the usual care they need. Yasemin came from Istanbul to help. We're physically very tired, mentally very tired, exhausted, but we're trying not to show this to our patients. They need us now. They need our warm touch. We're trying to keep our motivation high. Thoughts of what has happened here are still raw. The search and rescue efforts continue across the earthquake area, each story of survival increasingly rare. A 77-year-old woman was rescued from the rubble after 212 hours. Another 42-year-old also pulled from deep beneath. Those found alive at this stage are even more likely to be in a critical condition. Here, other signs of hope. 48 aid trucks filled with blankets, medicine and food head across the front line from East Syria to the country's northwest. Some UN aid has also made it across some newly opened border crossings with Turkey, but nearly 10 days on, there is little time to lose. Residential streets are filled with heavy machinery. Buildings turn to grey piles of dust and rubble, now slowly being moved. The dead are still being counted, and the road ahead seems uncertain for many. Carolyn Davis with that report. Uh, it is a quarter past five here at First Up in RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Um 2101 is the number to get hold of us. We're just going to, uh, later on in the programme, tell you how you can contact uh, police to be able to check on people you haven't heard from. Rather than asking if you're somewhere, because what I've seen now is, look, there's still 1,400 people unaccounted for. A lot of power is still out in telecommunications as well. So please let us know areas of New Zealand that you still haven't been able to contact. And uh, hopefully we will uh, do our best to see if we can bring you information from there and perhaps uh, put you at ease uh, somehow to uh, Europe now uh, from Sweden I'm joined by Anita Purcell Sherland uh, Morena Anita how are you? Fine thank you Morena Hey uh, let's start uh, the war in Ukraine of course still ongoing the Russians now seem to be attacking more on uh, uh, more of the infrastructure uh, but many of those attacks still being repelled by those brave Ukrainians yeah, on Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that Ukrainian forces have repelled some Russian attacks on the eastern uh, region of Luhansk, but the situation there is still difficult. Now, this comes after Russia said earlier in the day that its troops had broken through two fortified Ukrainian defence lines on the eastern front and that Ukrainian forces retreated, leaving behind equipment. Meanwhile, NATO defence ministers are currently meeting in Brussels to discuss um, NATO members' increasing 
getting supplies to Ukraine. One suggestion is from German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius, who is pushing that NATO countries spend a minimum of 2% of their gross domestic product on defence. And at the same time, the EU has announced that it will propose sanctions targeting, for the first time, Iranian economic operations involved in the Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, also, allegations of Russian war crimes against Ukrainian children. What can, what can you tell us about that? Well, according to researchers from Yale University and the U.S. State Department, the Russian government is uh, operating a network of 40 child custody centres for thousands of Ukrainians. Ukrainian children assigned for forced adoption or political re-education. Now, the researchers, they released a 35-page report called Russia's Systematic Program for the Re-Education and Adoption of Ukraine's Children. Now, in the report are allegations that the Kremlin is systematically abducting children, preventing their return to Ukraine through detention, and re-educating them to become pro-Russia, all of which may constitute war crimes or crimes against humanity. Now, the report does documents at least 6,000 Ukrainian children, and that's just those that are uh, documented, um, detained in either adoption or military centres which stretch across Russia. Now, the youngest child at an adoption camp is four months, while the youngest at a military training camp is 14 years old. Oh, it's awful. Um, Now, Moldova's uh, president is also accusing, uh, she's sorry, accusing Russia of plotting to overthrow the country's pro-EU government. How so? Well, we have to backtrack a little because on Monday, Moldova's pro-Western government resigned after 18 months in power following a series of economic and political crises that's basically engulfed the country in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Doreen Rysian, who is a former uh, minister and is pro-EU, is the country's prime minister-designate. Now, today, on Wednesday, President Maya Sandu said Russia plotted to overthrow her country's pro-EU government in a plan involving citizens of uh, from Russia, Montenegro, Belarus, and Serbia. Now, these saboteurs would enter Moldova and try and spark protests in an attempt to change the legitimate government to an illegal government controlled by the Russian Federation. President Sandu said the plot was revealed by Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky last week, and it was confirmed today. Oh, this one is just terrible. The German ballet director sacked. Please tell the audience this horrible story of why why they've been sacked. Yeah, it literally is. I mean, in Germany, the refined world of ballet has literally been dragged through poop. Now, Marco Gurka is the director of the Hanover State Opera's Ballet Company, and he's suspended and under police investigation for allegedly smearing a critic's face with his dog's poop at the premiere of his new show in the Dutch Mountain. Now, Wiebke Huster is a ballet critic for the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, and she re- reviewed Gurka's show as boring and disjointed and she wrote that one alternates between a state of feeling insane and being killed by boredom. Now Gurkha is famous for carrying his pet Dachau to shows and now he's infamous for using his pet's poop as retaliation against bad critique. Oh my goodness. Uh, Anita, thank you uh, very much for your time out of Sweden and I know with uh, your heart there in Napier uh, of course I grew up there in Pitamai so uh, Anita Purcell Schuland.
don't know how he'd deal with the text line into this place, i tell you that. Uh, Nathan Rarity here, uh, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we will have the Deputy Prime Minister with us in the aftermath of these catastrophic uh, floods. However, there's still very much an ongoing situation. Also, an animal charity uh, helping out with the animals and building a, a greyhound kingdom. Time to head to the top of the South Islands now and talk issues with the local democracy reporting programme's Max Freethy, uh, where there's a development in the Nelson Library saga. Previously, because most of the building had been closed because it was deemed to be earthquake prone, only the children's section of the library was open as a wee pop-up library. So people could still come in and get their books and then librarians could enter the main building to bring specific books out to people. But now after some strengthening works, they've opened another section of the library. So it's about half the building now people can go into and, and browse books. So They've moved in 240 shelves and over 8,000 books and a lot more room, less cramped, less noise. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. Oh, that is. Yeah, it is good to have that resource back open. Tell me about what's, what's the new voting system that's in place? Prior to the last local election, Nelson City Council brought in the single transferable vote, the, the ranked voting, instead of the first-past-the-post where you just tick one candidate. And they also introduced the ward system. But Nelson City Council commissioned a poll to get voters' opinions of those two systems. And it was found that, by and large, people don't like it. 63% of people preferred the single choice first past the post, with only 21% preferring the ranked choice. And then the ward system, while it wasn't as stark a difference, 44% preferred not to have the wards, with 33% in favour of them. Though it might be important to note that 52% of Māori supported having the ward system because they now also have a Māori ward, which would boost their level of participation within council. Right. The hospital too, this uh, is a bit weird when you have a look at the weather system that's just hit New Zealand, but um, Nelson Hospital <laughs> wants resource consent to burn coal. Why is that? Yes, and in today's day and age, you know, that understandably sounds alarming. The current consent that asked for is to burn 4,000 tonnes of coal per year for the next seven years. For people, that probably sounds alarming. You know, Nelson City Council, as well as central government, have declared these climate emergencies. And so Nelson Mayor Nick Smith, he believes that because it's such a significant decision that the approval for the resource consent should be moved up to a councillor level. However, in my chats with local MP Rachel Boyack, she said to me that the application for the burning of the coal is sort of precautionary, that because the hospital is an essential service, it needs to have a dual power system. And so currently, about 60-70% of the hospital is powered via uh, landfill gas, via methane. And this application to burn the coal is to have a backup, so in case something happens to the landfill gas supply, that they can still supply power to the hospital. And it's probably also important to note that the hospital plans to have a new sustainable heating option ready by November 2024. So it's yeah, more precautionary so that if anything goes wrong, they do have this option to continue to power the hospital. Yeah, well, if there's anywhere that you'd want to have a backup, it would be, it would be a hospital. And uh, finally, yes, a, so. a campaign to rename a street. Which one? Yeah, so um, in the Nelson suburb of Toy Toy, there's a street named Amano. It turns out that actually Amano Street was named after a Ngāti Tama chief of Wakapuaka whose name was Temanu. The name Amano was made in 1842, and obviously it's got a bit confused along the way because the street was named after Temanu, but it's now down as Emano. So you've, you've got this mistake here. And uh, I've talked to some, some local residents, including one of the descendants of Temanu, and they're pretty excited about potentially getting the, the street name changed to correctly honour Timanu.
they don't really view it as a name change, just sort of a, a correction of a spelling mistake. Is there a timeline on when that would happen? Yeah, it, it's all very fluid at this point in stage. Nelson City Council has formally received a request to change the name. So consultation will begin to happen in the next sort of few weeks or months, including consultation with Ngāti Tama and, and other iwi. That's LDR's Max Freethy with all the latest happenings from around Nelson. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It is the day of our life. We call the 16th of February. I wish that I had my Claritin on the way in this morning and I was sneezing. And on this day, in the year 600 AD, Pope Gregory the Great decreed that saying God bless you was the correct response to a sneeze. There you are. Certified by a Pope. Uh, having a birthday today is the fe- fellow that was born, Tracy Marrow. Yo, it's time for me to pump up the volume. No problem, the record's This man. No, it's Ice T. He is 65 years old today. If you don't know him from uh, his rapping exploits, you might know him from Law and Order SUV, where he's Finn. Finn Tutuola. He's the guy that always looks surprised that something's happened, despite the fact that he works for a special victims unit. So that's um, yeah, that's his role in it. Uh, also, happy 64th birthday to you, John McEnroe, born in Germany 64 years ago, and uh, an, an artist called The Weekend turns 33 years old today. Now, for those of you that know the weekend like, oh yeah the weekend sure if you don't know the weekend i'll just I'll just feed you some information okay this song right here is called blinding lights it is the number one song on billboard's greatest songs of all time hot 100 chart it replaced chubby checkers the twist the weekend uh, has he was born in toronto he's uh, the son of ethiopian immigrants abel tesfaye is his name this is the longest charting song by a solo artist on the hot 100 it spent 90 weeks on the charts it's the most listened to song of all time on spotify as well and um it's like those ads me with Mrs. Marsh. It does get in. It does get in. You're going to hear this and go, it sounds like the 80s. And he went, I wanted it to sound like the 80s. But yeah, the, uh, I guess, statistically, most popular current song of all time. And uh, on this day in 1861, after winning the US election, Abraham Lincoln stopped his train on his way to Washington, D.C. Why? There was an 11-year-old girl called Grace Biddle, and he wanted to thank her in person. She said, hey, you should grow a beard, you'll get more votes. And he did. And on this day in 1937, Dr. Wallace Carruthers uh, of the DuPont Company patented nylon. Of course, uh, it it was used in stockings or what have you, but it was first uh, commercially used for toothbrush bristles. And uh, that is uh, this day in history. We call the 16th of February. Anzaki is with me now talking all things business. Kia ora, how are you? Moreno, very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Blinding lights. It's a banger. It's a banger. It is a great song. It's still good. Great song. It's still good, isn't it? Hey, tell me about this. The Financial Markets Authority have slapped a ban on a multi-level marketing company. Which which one of those is this? Yeah, there are many of those, aren't there? Um, so the FMA uh, has put a ban on US registered validus, uh, which has been uh, holding meetings in the country over the past week. Uh, they first really came into the country uh, around September last year, uh, and now and the authority actually warned people uh, just as recently as last week as well about this company, just to be wary of them uh, as they held meetings. 
Uh, and the order bans Validus from making uh, any offer to sell, accept applications, uh, advertise financial products or services uh, under the Validus name, and also bans any supply of financial advice. So uh, Validus is a company uh, that promises investors uh, huge returns of uh, 300%. Um, and, and I was just uh, too good, too good to be true. Uh, and... In uh, previous events, uh, Validus has uh, offered uh, financial trading courses uh, payable in uh, cryptocurrencies uh, along with various uh, investment schemes and and also, uh, and this is a big red flag, payments for recruiting new members. Uh, now, the FMA says uh, encouraging to recruit new investors into the scheme is a classic sign of a pyramid scheme, and pyramid schemes are, of course, illegal. Uh, it says there's a real risk of investor harm uh, that could be, that could come from Validus and its associated people uh, that look to be dishonest and misleading. Uh, and actually, there's a great uh, first-person article um, written by one of our former colleagues, Nicholas Poynton, on the NBR um, about a Validus meeting, and it just uh, uh, goes through uh, 250 the, uh, people at that meeting. I've just had yeah, a look at that's it here. right. Oh that's no, but look, right. the guy in charge's name is Howard Friend. He must be friendly. <laughs> Come on, he must it's, be very it's friendly. Fifty percent return. What could be wrong? <laughs> that's right. Um, now the FMA is asking people to come forward with uh, any complaints uh, or information about Validus. Uh, especially if they've made contributions, investments or deposits. Uh, this ban is in effect for 30 days and the FMA um, will consider making it permanent. So uh, uh, warning out there for people just to steer clear of them. Mm, I think so. Thank you very much, Anansaki. Uh, you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Now, um, turning to your New Zealand dollar trading around the world, currently pulling in 62.61 US cents, 91.1 Australian cents, 58.67 euro cents, 52.12 British pence, 4.29 yuan, and 84 Japanese yen. Uh, it's 26 to 6 here at first up on RNZ National. Animals have also been there. Homeless, obviously, and shaken during Cyclone Gabrielle. Uh, to find out how they're being helped, we visited Hoo-Ha at their temporary base at the Dog Exhibition Centre in South Auckland as some of the team prepare to head to Hawke's Bay. Uh, Hoo-Ha founder and chief executive Caroline Press McKenzie told our producer Matthew Tunison uh, why helping people with their pets and livestock is such an important part of the response. Hey Carolyn, how are you? Matthew, great to see you. Nice to meet you. I've spoken to you. So we came with the temporary fencing panels that we always use in these events and we set them up and the place looked great and it was functioning really well but we've now been deployed to Hawke's Bay so we have to divide and conquer. So what reports are you hearing out of there? Oh, it's really particularly horses I think are in a very bad way. There's a lot of them sort of being... Did you see the horse that was on the roof of a barn? Did you? Here, I'll show you a photo. It's scary. Horses have basically been washed out of their paddocks and ending up in strange places. So we're loading our horse float now, stockyards. We've got a portable cattle yard, stock trailer. In, in terms of the scale of this thing and what you've dealt with before, you're yeah. no stranger to a crisis, I know, but this is, this is um, another level, isn't it? Yeah, what it is is it's just so dispersed. So for, for Nelson Fires, the volume we took in was more. We took in 950 animals into our temporary shelter in Nelson, but it was in one place and it was one fire, whereas this is, you know, 
catastrophic it's across the country and it's where do you go where's the best place to be so strategically it's much more confusing but we landed in the right place for Auckland I think we've got 23 dogs in care they all urgently needed care owners were carrying them out of floodwaters nowhere to go so yeah we're pleased we were there for them so when we build for the animals, when we shelter them, we want them to feel like they're really at home and yes. having an enriched, great time. So we make sure they have oodles of blankets, plenty of space, and they, they just have that sort of sense of safety and comfort and, and the confidence that they're in a, in a good place. Who, who are these lovely big... So, uh, Alsatians, Those guys came in, their dad brought them in. He's, um, his house was terribly flooded and obviously he just needed to focus on him so he needed to find somewhere to stay and the dogs have come in. Around the corner here, this is sort of like our, our greyhound kingdom. <laughs> so you've got 10 greyhounds. The family are incredible. They carried out four during the floods. It was sort of, I think it was like waist deep and they carried them out of their facility. They couldn't get to the other six greyhounds till the next morning, so they were pretty stressed. But anyway, we've built them a little greyhound kingdom here. Are these racing dogs? Yeah, they are. One, we asked them if any were due to retire, and, and one was, so we've actually just had that one surrendered to us, so that'll come back to Wellington and, and we'll rehome him. These ones here, we, we were up till two o'clock at night collecting these ones. It's a little family. The owner was incredibly stressed and emotionally affected by everything. She was sitting in the dark when we arrived and she wasn't leaving because she didn't know where to take these, these dogs. There's five of them, so there's the mum, the dad and the three puppies and they hurt everything. We had them out playing, there's an off-leash park just behind us here and um, they've, they've had a really lovely fun time and now they're, they're snoozing. They're exhausted. They're exhausted, but blissfully exhausted, Good. which is great. But some of these dogs, some of these animals, Caroline, are going to be very stressed when you get them. Oh, yeah. And the other thing, too, is if they've been through the floodwaters, they need to be decontaminated. The floodwaters, you know, toxins, pollutants, all sorts of yucky stuff on them, but also it can help introduce sort of fungus bacteria yeah. into their paws and fur. But they say that also the silk can work like a cling film, and actually... So as soon as they come in, if they've been through the floodwater, we take them to the to the shampooing station and give them a quick shampoo come and have a look over here you might get a bit of barking but this, the oh my that is the biggest dog i've so ever seen he's not particularly people friendly and his mum and dad have really really <coughs> you can hear it in his back what a good boy he's a great dane. yeah he's a huge great dane his mum says he's a small great dane but he's the biggest one i've met he's got a king-size bed carolyn press mckenzie from who has given this great dane a king-size bed <laughs> well to be fair not entirely true that's where his mum and dad are sleeping so yeah, so they've come. They they came. They couldn't find anywhere that would take them with their dog, but they didn't want to be without their dog. So we said, well, why don't you stay too? There's plenty of room. So in it's a huge. Every room we make is really big. So it's fitted a king size bed. His bed. There's a chair in there. They've got all of their the gear, the clothes. So it's a couple. Yeah, they're really nice people. They've just gone off to look at the flood damage. Their house is. It was underwater. Basically, they're just going to live here until they can find somewhere that is a little bit more permanent. I think the memo is, if you've got a pet and you're struggling, you don't have to. There is help. The legend that is Carolyn Press McKenzie amongst the giant dogs speaking to our producer, Matthew Tunison. 
Okay, it's 20 to 6. Uh, still to come, uh, we're in the Coromandel where the power is slowly returning, but the water situation is critical. Also, Deputy Prime Minister Carmel uh, Sepuloni will be live with us. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are here after six and they're based in Wellington which got in on the uh, the action last night by providing an earthquake for everyone. So there you go. Corin, uh, Dan is with me right now. How are things? Uh, they're good. Kia ora. Kia ora everybody. Yeah, it was just um, one of those moments where you thought, surely not. <laughs> not this as well. Because it went on just, uh, people in Wellington and other parts of the country too, it just went on long enough to be a bit concerning. That was yeah, the problem. Yeah, I know those ones, yeah. If you're growing up you in know? Hawke's Bay, it was like that. You get the ones you're like, oh yeah, and then there's ones where you're like, oh yeah, mm. oh, no, hang on. Oh, Do I on. get under the table Should or I not? Go to the doorway. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was a bit of a bit of a bit of a jolt to the nerves. It's fair to say, but mm. uh, thankfully no harm done there. Uh, we are very much focused, as you can imagine, on Hawkes Bay and uh, parts of the country, the east coast in particular, that continues to be well. The scale of the devastation of this disaster just keeps on revealing. It's just just so shocking. Yeah, the the East Valley in particular too was one I was thinking of because the watershed there, the way that it works, and there's really only one one way out down the bottom. Um, that's a uh, yeah. You know, I think like that is horrible. No, exactly. And I think we're we're, we're learning more. There are still been there were still rescues going on mm. last night. Uh, so we'll get the latest from uh, the minister Michael Wood, uh, who is uh, joining us this morning. But we're going to get through that. We've got a lot to get through. We've got yeah. the supermarkets. We'll talk to both of the supermarkets about their supplies because that's obviously a big issue. Uh, we will get uh, updates from the from the mayors in all those key east coast. Uh, towns. Uh, Tafata Ora, the Ministry of Health, will give us uh, an update too on how health services are going to be affected uh, in those regions. We'll talk to some of the chopper pilots who have been rescuing people. Mm. Uh, so we'll be right across all that stuff. And Phil Pennington too has been doing some great work finding out about fuel. There's a lot of issues around getting fuel in and out, diesel for generators, all that sort of stuff. So we'll have a big wrap up on that so people can um, get a handle on where things are at. Cheers, Corin. Thank you very much. Um, look, at last, many Coromandel residents were able to enjoy a hot meal and cold beer yesterday when the lights flickered on for the first time since Sunday night. Uh, but they've been warned that that situation with the water now, as you just heard Corin mention, is now absolutely critical uh, with the sewer at capacity and it's likely to be overflowing in places as well. Residents have been largely cut off from the rest of the country thanks to Cyclone Gabrielle and it's hoped that Waka Kotahi can today clear State Highway 25 and enable those much-needed supplies to be brought in there. Our reporter Leonard Powell has been amongst those stranded on the Coromandel's east coast and he filed this report. There was a huge sense of relief in Tairua and cheers from neighbours in one street when the lights flickered on last night for the first time since Sunday. Plug in all the devices and battery packs and get them charged up, then the fridges and freezers. You were in an emergency situation, you just work to the highest priorities. I'll be putting the beer in the fridge. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> Having a shower. Oh yeah, oh, yeah brother, them too. And to shave. Uh, go back on the bikes and charge the e-bikes back up and go for a ride. Yeah, definitely. And a decent coffee, get the coffee machine going. Oh, just saving the meat in the freezer in the fridge. Oh, yes. <laughs> but with so much stress still on the region's water infrastructure, residents are being urged to keep conserving water. Local police officer Dylan Curtin, who is helping run a civil defence centre on the main street, says the water situation is absolutely critical and it's essential that people continue to conserve water. He says the sewer is at capacity 
and is likely to be overflowing in places, making surrounding water unsafe. How have you found it having to conserve water? What's it been like? Well, we've avoided flushing our toilets and we have got drinking water already. I haven't washed the dishes at all today. <laughs> and I guess we won't be showering tomorrow either if it's, um, if it's that bad. We've had no water for two days because there's no power and we need the powerhouse, the pump house to make the water reservoir bring us water. So that's been not so fun. We've been helping empty a friend's house out along the estuary that got flooded with a metre of water and they happen to be in Spain as we speak so they don't know really how bad their house is. Mr Curtin says the water contractor Veolia isn't able to say when it'll be sorted. Thames Coromandel Civil Defence Controller Gary Towler told Checkpoint last night good progress was made restoring the power to a large number of properties yesterday. The power restoration is coming on slowly with PowerCo. They have a massive clean-up job, so we could probably say that there are probably seven or eight of the smaller communities are still affected. A lot of them have had power restored. The roading network, most of our local roads are still compromised to some degree. A lot of them are still closed and they will be until those steps appear. Mr Towler hoped State Highway 25, which connects the Coromandel with Whangamata and Waihi, would partially open with traffic management today. Half an hour north of Taiadua in the beachside community of Hahei, local resident Anton Wallinitz tells me the power has been intermittent and its return caused a nightmare for his neighbour. When the power came on, the neighbours had like a, a new heat pump and it must have kind of overcooked itself and... We just saw black smoke coming out of the neighbour's house, ran over there, checked it out, kind of knocked on the door, no one was home, saw black smoke in there, decided, hey, let's try to just break down the window to see, you know, if there's anybody in there or how bad is it, and it was just dark with smoke. So called up the fire brigade, they came over, and the whole house is it's pretty much a write-off. I think they've got an insurance claim and stuff like that, but just one disaster after another down here in Hahe. Back in Taidua at the Hammer Hardware, store manager Michelle says they're starting to run low on supplies. So 9kg, LPG, um, gas bottles, butane, batteries, um, people are asking after torches, which we've sold out, also wanting cookers, which we've sold out, we've got all the barbecues, but not the cookers, and transistor radios, which we don't have at all. Yeah, what sort of volume of, of those were you selling or did you have on stock on hand before you sold out? What was it like? So the butane canisters, we had boxes and boxes and we're down to probably our last maybe 20 cans. Torches, 20, 30. Batteries, just you name it, we had them and now we're just, yeah, getting pretty low. Civil Defence is advising Taidua residents to use two portable water sites at Azimuth and Ocean Beach Road if they need fresh water. Leonard Powell with that report. So here's the situation as it stands. We're three days after Monday's devastating cyclone. We've still got thousands of people across Tairawhiti, Hawke's Bay, Northland, Auckland and Coromandel remaining cut off without power and cell phone coverage. So it's very hard to get hold of them and see how it's going. 9,000 people uh, displaced in Hawke's Bay alone. I was talking to a Hastings councillor just before the program. He said there's still 1,400 people unaccounted for. It is a busy, busy time going on. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni uh, joins us right now. Uh, thank you very much because I know that for you and uh, all of you there, it's... Uh, I've seen the bunker full on, I've seen lots of work that's going on. Just very quickly, is there any word that you can give us about the, the, the earthquake that struck last night? Not well. I haven't received the most recent updates. As of last night, 
Uh, last I checked, there had been no damage reported, uh, but obviously that could change this morning. Okay, good. That's that's good to hear. So let, let's move on to obviously the the, the big story going on. Uh, the, this clean up after um, Cyclone Gabrielle. I mean, are we at the clean up stage yet, or, or how do you look at it? Are we are we in the clean up, or are we at the still in the the search and rescue rescue stage of this? Different parts of New Zealand are at different points in uh, this, and so I guess in Auckland. Uh, we're looking at a clean-up, but Hawke's Bay and other parts that, where there are still people that have been displaced, where there are still people unaccounted for, uh, where clearly um, the, the water is still having a huge impact on those communities, and we're not even at the clean-up stage yet. I, I saw a picture just on uh, Instagram that Kitty Tapu Allen put up of uh, through, through the uh, Waiweka Gorge there. A whole lot of the logs obviously have been brought down, so you've got a whole lot of mud there. Uh, Esk Valley too, the footage that came out of there was quite horrifying uh, to see. Uh, do we Are we able to do this with our own resources or will we hope to get help from our friends overseas for this? Look, there's been, um, I don't think there's been any uh, asks for help at this stage. I think that uh, where we can, we will do what is possible. Um, and certainly we still need to ascertain the extent of this. And because of the different points that parts of New Zealand are at, we're not even able to really assess the full extent of the damage. Yeah, which must be hard. So how do you try and coordinate this? Um, and I guess this is just more a curiosity question for people going, it's so hard because, like you said, it's such a huge amount that it's affected and it's all affected so differently. It is. And, you know, in those parts like the Hawke's Bay that are still massively impacted, uh, you know, it is a coordination effort between all of the relevant agencies, NEMA, uh, local government, of course, our amazing community organisations that are out there and, and government uh, workers as well that are on the ground. Because of the comms issue, uh, having people on the ground has been the most important thing uh, because they're there on the spot and able to provide advice and support uh, to the families affected. It's very hard to do that from a distance uh, when we're still struggling with power outages and, and communications uh, uh, breakdowns where uh, they don't have communications or they don't have the internet. Mm. Yeah, the communications is, is massive. I know that uh, particularly around the Hawke's Bay area, you know, they'd lost that, they'd lost internet. And I've actually got a family member who had no idea that, it, that all of that had gone on in Taradale, not two kilometres away from where they lived, because they just thought they were cut off by surface flooding because they didn't know. So getting those comms back up and running, how, how do we handle that? Or how is that being, you know, treated? All fixed. <laughs> uh, the power companies, the, the um, comms companies are all working hard to try and get things up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, we're still seeing parts of, I think, even Northland and Auckland uh, where it's not fully established yet, um, but they've been working hard to try and get families back on the grid uh, so that we, we at least, they're at least able to kind of operate and are able to communicate with other parts of the country and, of course, with family who are worried about what's happening with them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, Northland's still dealing with a lot of that. I know roading up there are a huge issue for them. They're worried about supplies getting to Whangarei. And the, the mayor of, of Wairoa in Northern Hawke's Bay there said last night he, he fears the town might be cut off for Napier for a year. How is the government looking to, I guess, try and re-establish those links? Uh, every different government agency and all of the stakeholders that I spoke of before have a, a role to play in this. And so they're all working hard to try and get get towns and cities up and running again. Um, clearly, the roading is going to be an issue for some time in some parts of New Zealand. And I certainly want, wouldn't want to put a time frame 
um, on that. You know, um, as as well as that, I mean, like Auckland was in the firing line early on, and obviously we've seen tragedy out, out Muriwai Way. Uh, you visited the, the the North Shore Civil Defence Centre yesterday. What what did you find there? Actually, went the day before to North Shore. Yesterday, I was yeah. Yesterday, I was down south, seeing lesser numbers. I'm still seeing those that are helping in, in high spirits. Uh, I know last night I got a text to say at the Trust Stadium they received some people. I think, from the airport. And so people are impacted when they uh, travel to Auckland and then are meant to go to these affected areas and clearly can't move on uh, because of the, the impacts of the cyclone on those areas. And so the, the emergency centres have been still receiving people and in some instances it has been from airports. Mm. You know, I've I've mentioned it before there, that logging slash uh, has continued to cause massive issues. Uh, Obviously, it's a legislation that was done previously, so there's nothing we can do about it now, and it is being a bit capped in hindsight. But what's going to be done, and and who's going to be held responsible to stop that from happening in the future? Well, I certainly think there will be discussions held uh, with the forestry industry uh, around the slashing and the uh, potential impacts as we've seen due to the cyclone. Uh, I don't think any decisions have been made as of yet, but that is certainly on everyone's radar because we've all seen the images and the way in which it has exacerbated an already bad situation. Mm. Um, another piece which I think you know really got to a lot of hearts here, not just here in New Zealand but internationally as well, I and mean, we spoke to a Tongan journalist yesterday uh, about those 50 RSE workers that were rescued off the roofs there you know, two days ago in, in Hawke's Bay. The Pacific governments have already been critical of our treatment of those workers. Uh, did, did you know, I mean, did the message to evacuate never get to them? Is that how they ended up on that roof? Look, I think that um, they were, were victims of whatever the communications were in those particular areas at that time. Uh, as we know, we lost communication and communications were down in, in certain areas. And, and unfortunately, where they were placed would de- determine whether or not um, they were getting the messages or able to get out quickly enough. Um, the, the last report that I had was almost all REC workers are accounted for now. Um, As you know, and I think you've already been reporting, about 1,442 people are unaccounted for. At the same time, 1,111 have been reported as found, and there'll be crossover there. Um, And there are, I think, I believe a few REC workers um, who are still currently unaccounted for. At this point in time, there's no reason to think that um, something that has happened. Um, It's very hard to keep the data of who is going into the civil defence centres uh, who has been found, whether they're safe because of the fact that the communications are so bad at this point in time. Right. Well, uh, look, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni, I know it's a very busy time. Thank you very much for joining us uh, here at uh, First Up on RNZ National. And hopefully uh, those of you listening have got a, a, a bit of comfort at least on that to hear that. Yeah, just a massive number of people who haven't checked in yet. But again, they, they just might not be able to. Claire says, my sister's in Hawke's Bay, no power of course. She still has a landline and no fibre. She's plugged in the phone to the wall, not hand-free and has a telephone. Uh, can you mention in case others uh, can try that as well? Uh, and uh, so a lot of uh, love coming in there for Carolyn Press McKenzie as well. Uh, Bob Renshaw says Cyclone Gabrielle, the disaster is on such a scale that Labour and National should form a government to work through all the issues uh, that have arisen for the storm and get the country running again. I think there's actually has been quite a bit of coordination there. I believe there was only one party that was pushing back against this. Uh, and someone, how can I find out if I want to contact by text uh, people in uh, Farurangi Road there, Green Meadows. So uh, what I've got here is this. What you need to do is go to the police.govt.com 
www.nz website and there is a thing called a, a 105 or a 105 form you'll see that it's a police.gov.nz forward slash use dash 105 but just have a look for the 105 and what you can do there is register to say i'm trying to contact these people or uh if by chance you can hear us because you've got communications or electricity you can actually post to go i'm all right but like i said there are people there that have been so cut off uh from from this they just thought they had localized flooding they don't know what's even gone on just near them so uh it is an ongoing situation and it's a horrible one and my heart goes out particularly to my big hopes there for esk valley uh morning report is next with kim and corin more information coming up for you first up's back in your ears up or ball